We want to help you navigate uh, around a little bit of what we do at Generations Church. And one of the things that you heard me mention uh, at the outset is, is prayer. Um, for some of us, this is our natural heart posture of when times are in trouble, we're going to God in prayer. For others, it's sometimes difficult and it seems like there's a barrier there. So naturally, we want to create opportunities for us to pray because why we are doing this is we are here because of Jesus to live life with God for the world. And one of the ways that we try to do that here at Generation Church is through prayer, not just praying um, just kind of maybe just for ourselves, but praying for each other and for our community. So I want to highlight just one opportunity this week at which you can pray. Uh, it's gonna, we're going to pray for our local schools, the staff, the administrators, and, uh, and our kids this week. So I support staff as well. So yes, so all people involved. So we've got a slide, I think, for the one-hour prayer that we're going to go ahead and throw up there. So two, two areas of prayer that I want to highlight this week. On Tuesday at 6.30, we're going to be praying for Salmon Creek Elementary, um, and then uh, and then we're also going to be praying for Skyview High School uh, this week. Now, those are two schools that are right here in the, our local area. But we know we have people from all different schools um, who call Generations Church their home. The full list is at this website, onehourprayer.com. So if you, if you want to go be a point person, if you want to pray for the school that, that your child is going to, we encourage you to go to that list, look up what school, and show up at that time. Um, and you don't have to have a kid. Um, to, to be, do, be a part of this. Uh, maybe you just are a per person who is just like, man, I, I care deeply for about maybe what's being taught. Um, I, I want to make sure that our, our teachers are, have, have peace and clarity. And so we're going to do some of that. Um, here in a couple weeks, we're also going to pray for our, our support staff, for our administrators, for our teachers here at our gathering, um, and for our students. Uh, we will also be praying for those both who are going to public school, private school, uh, and homeschool. And so, again, we, want, we believe that as we pray, as we seek God, He shows up in power. So we hope that you take that opportunity to do that. Uh, maybe you have a prayer request, so fill that out on the gin card and drop it in our response bucket. So we would love to be praying for you. Please fill that out. We'd love to get to know you and your story, because your story matters here. Um, as I say that, um, we are going to go ahead and just kind of have a moment of reset time. Really, the reason we do this is because we sometimes can sit in rows um, at these things and not necessarily interact. So we want to give you an opportunity uh, maybe to uh, refill your coffee, say hi to someone. In fact, hey, why don't you just go ahead and ask someone who they appreciate this week? So don't think, I know sometimes we can think about stuff. Um, that we're grateful for. But think of a person, someone who you're grateful for and share it with the next. So we're going to have a two-minute timer that goes up. Take two minutes, refill your coffee, go to the bathroom before we get teaching time. Tell someone the name of someone that you appreciate this week as our elementary kids are dismissed uh, to their class for this two-minute reset.
I get to play host and teacher today. I'm excited to do that. Um, as we come back together, maybe as you top off your coffee, as um, hopefully you, you heard some appreciations. Maybe, maybe you were able to share who you're appreciative for this week. I hope you were able to do that. Um, I am deeply grateful um, for so many of you. Um, man, I... So, so, so many people, both in this room and those of you who I know are watching online. What I want to do this morning is I'm going to read our teaching text. Um, we try to root ourselves in the Word of God, and I know for some of you, um, as I even said about prayer, sometimes opening up the Bible um, is difficult. Um, so I just want to uh, go ahead and read from Genesis chapter 50, um, verses 15 through 21. A little backstory before I read this. Uh, this is the end of Genesis. This is the, the kind of the capstone story of Joseph before we transition uh, to a whole new book uh, in Exodus. And so uh, Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 through 21. If you do not have your own Bible um, to personally read from, if you would like to do that, we have Bibles for you. We would love to give you that as a gift today. So hopefully, um, that gives you a second, it, or you can read and listen along on the screen with me. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept. When their message came to him, his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let me pray for us. God, we need to hear from you this morning. As we engage in this difficult and sometimes jarring topic, God, our hearts are all over the place, and God, I just, I need you to comfort. I need you to speak. Help us listen to you and be open to what you might have for us this morning. Your word is living and active and sharper than any sword. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust. Three million Africans forcibly transported by the British slave trade. Nadia Murad's systemic rape at the hands of an ISIS judge. The Rwandan genocide. The ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims. The trafficking of more than two million children this year in the global sex trade. Well, 1.5 million children died of diarrhea. 
famines in South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, Yemen, 2004 tsunami in Indonesia, fires in Maui, the quiet stealth of cancer, children abused by their parents, the early death of a friend. Richard Dawkins looks at all this combined with the impersonal forces that have forged our bodies through suffering, violence, and death, and declares that our universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. This week's question in our series, hey, I've got a question about, hey, I've got a question about evil and suffering. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we think about the reality and difficulties of our world, we can tend towards despair. We can have a lot of questions and wonder, are there substantive answers that go beyond the cliches? We've all seen those things on social media, um, or you've heard it even from a well-meaning friend, where they give you a phrase that's supposed to comfort you on some level when you ask, why? Or maybe even, where are you, God? In fact, when I was preparing for this teaching this morning, there was no less than at least 25 different questions with about way too many follow-up questions that I came about this topic. Questions like, why do good things happen to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Or, I don't know, why is there even pain or suffering? We can start to ask all kinds of questions. And what, I, what I've found is that when we start to ask these questions, I think it's actually helpful for us to start to think in two categories, just to help us navigate and get our arms around this massive, sometimes difficult subject. The first way is these macro reasons, some of those big over-the-top you know, why the tsunami, why the tornado, why the flood, why cancer, the, 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 the big kind of why, are it, why suffering, those big macro ones, and then there's the micro ones. Why specific instance, why was my friend hit by a drunk driver and gone way too soon? Why um, did this person who is seemingly good, why did they get behind on their rent and lose their house? We can ask all of these both macro questions, and we also know that behind this concept of evil and suffering, for far too many of us, there's these personal micro questions, and both are significant. And sometimes we try to justify these micro, like have these answers for these micro questions, and at other times, we feel like we don't have those answers, and the same thing can be true for those macro questions questions. When it comes to macro reasons for why there is suffering in the world, the Bible is rich with helpfulness. And in most cases, when we start to understand the Christian worldview, it actually starts to trickle down and helps us navigate with good principles and practice when we engage the brokenness 
and difficulty and suffering of our everyday lives. And so oftentimes, as I've already mentioned, people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The challenge is, when we ask even a question like this, there's so many assumptions that we have just made by that very question. We've assumed that the challenge that a person is facing is inherently bad or negative or evil. We've also made an assumption about the person. Well, maybe assuming that they are generally good and that maybe even this instance has no cause or should not have been happening to them. I find this question largely, frankly, unhelpful. We assume way too much about the nature of our world. And especially when we ask this question, we need to begin to understand that many of us because of our own stories and backgrounds and experiences, bring a worldview to bear and start to import answers to this type of question. And so I sometimes find it helpful to almost back up and then re-engage in a way that we start to have more conversations about the way in which we view the world and then as we have these conversations and answer these questions about the way in which we view the world, then maybe we find some comfort, some hope, and even a way to navigate the inconsistencies of just our world. So let me, let me back up and let me ask three a little bit bigger questions. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And maybe... A better question for this one, because I think we have so much difficulty with some of this, is how do we make sense of chaos when we work so hard for order? I think that may be a more important question, because as we look at, at so much issues within the world, both globally and locally, that we feel like we are in control. Therefore, when things are out of control, we have trouble making sense. And that speaks to our view of ourselves and the, the power we exert within the world and how societies view that they can exert their own power and influence within the world. And then I think a third question might be necessary. What could our response be to evil and suffering? And as we ask these questions, we start to get a sense of how... All kinds of people answer these questions. And we start to import how to navigate this brokenness. And most question, times when people ask these questions, it's always because it's deeply personal. But sometimes, like I said, some of those assumptions. We presume natural disasters have intent, that cancer has a consciousness, we attribute things to God that don't actually belong there. Maybe that God maybe do this so I could become this. We have all of these faulty pieces that are inconsistent with the biblical worldview. And ultimately, we've been influenced by all kinds of competing worldviews. And so how do we start to filter and turn out some of that noise? So Christianity is ultimately a worldview. It answers major questions about the nature of God, humanity, the brokenness, and then the situation in which we find ourselves in, and also, is there a remedy to that reality? 
And whether you or think you have a worldview or not, you do. You answer these questions verbally in your mind or with your life every single day. You, you communicate what you think about God, what you think about the nature of humanity, what you think about the predicament that we find ourselves in, and what in the world that we should do about it. You live that out consciously or unconsciously. And so sometimes our worldview has just basically become a hodgepodge of differing worldviews. So let me just call a few of those out because these worldviews clash ultimately when we come to this topic of evil and suffering. First worldview that I want to bring up this morning is this new age worldview. And ultimately what it says is that evil and suffering is a matter of perspective. That evil and suffering is really just an illusion. It denies actually the reality of evil and rejects really that evil and suffering has infected uh, like our world. And it's even infected some of Christians and their views of evil and suffering. In fact, Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, tells the following story. He said, recently I went to a house of an elderly Christian woman whose husband was in the hospital dying of cancer. She told me, my best friend who is Christian will not come to the hospital with me to visit my dying husband. And Mark, when he says, when I asked why she, why, she told me her friend believed if she went to the hospital, she would be acknowledging the reality that this man was sick and in doing so would give this false sickness power over him. She's over-spiritualized the situation, so she says, I'm not going to go visit him. And she also said to tell her friend, don't actually say the word cancer because then it won't be a reality. Because if you do, you're creating that reality in his life. It's this idea that not just that the words have power, but words manifest reality. And so this new age says, just don't even say it. Pretend like it's not a thing. Don't name, don't identify, just, just think about it differently. You've heard people tell us that, well, it's just a matter of perspective and how you look at it. And some of you go, I've been hurt in deeply personal ways. I look at the world and go, that's wrong. And then someone comes along and says, yeah, it's, it's just in how you're looking at it. It's some new age thinking that's crept into our worldview. And the way, the way that of this thinking denies reality and is ultimately thoroughly unbiblical. The Bible clearly teaches that evil and suffering are real. They can't be ignored or swept under the rug. They're so real that God himself had to come to earth in the person of Jesus to deal with them himself. If evil and suffering were not real and just a figment of our imagination or a matter of perspective, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come and die. So we must identify that, know that, and start to work that out of our perspective. The second worldview that has influenced us is that of um, our Indian brothers and sisters predominantly, and that's Hinduism. That evil and suffering is a result from karma. What this worldview ultimately says is, whatever is happening to someone, they deserve it. Good, they deserve it. Bad, they deserve it. They got what's coming to them. It starts to push back on 
some things. So you've heard people, t- you know, I mean, just think of a conversation you've had with a friend, and they may be talking about, like, good and bad things, and you, you might even just say the phrase flippantly, what goes around comes around. That actually does a disservice to evil and suffering. What it says is at every level, you deserve it. This is a consequence of your action. And it puts the liability and responsibility on you and you alone. And for some of us, we, we've, that's so baked into our worldview that as we look at others but in the, and their lives, sin, maybe that's, and, and the consequence of that that's justified, or maybe some things have happened that we go, that's, that's unjustified. We start to evaluate people using this worldview and philosophy, not just for ourselves, but on our communication and interaction with others. See, what happens when you think of these worldviews, you have to actually chase it down to its logical conclusion about what it says about God, humanity, the remedy, and then how that changes or starts to manifest your interaction with others. Because a worldview like this, people get what they deserve. Maybe you actually don't go and help them because they deserve it. So why would I intervene or do anything different to help that person? This is a natural consequence of their own actions, and they, should get, they get what's coming to them. What's interesting is there's even a story in the Bible where Jesus is faced with this reality. In John chapter 9, uh, so some people come up to Jesus and say, Hey, Rabbi, hey, so I see this blind man. Did his parents sin or did he, he sin to deserve this blindness? And Jesus actually responds and says, Hey, this isn't the way the world works. This is, this is a disease. This is a reality. But this is the case so that God's, uh, so that, so that God may be glorified Amen. in him. He says, who sends this man to his parents? And it was neither. It was through this situation that God's glory would be made known. And so, we look at that, and Jesus basically kind of sidesteps the question. He's like, this is a not good thing, but it's a not good because it might point to an ultimate reality, because it does point to an ultimate reality. The third world, world view in which I just want to briefly bring up is that of maybe the atheist, that evil exists, therefore God does not. This is very popular. Atheists argue that because evil and suffering exists in the universe, God does not. And I just want to say this. If you are someone with these worldviews in our room right now or watching online, I'm glad that you are. Not because I'm going to try to drastically say, this is what you have to believe, but I just want to humbly put before you, how does your worldview start to change or challenge your own heart, your own mind, and how you interact with the world? Is it logically consistent? And if there are inconsistencies, how are you going to reconcile that? Because I think the Christian worldview is ultimately the most compelling, the most complete, and most consistent. And so, this worldview says that if evil exists, that God does not. First, simply saying God can't exist if there is evil, does not necessarily make it true. The argument itself is built on several assumptions that need to be proven, not simply assumed. This is a far more difficult task 
to make a reality. In fact, philosopher Alvin Plantinga has pointed out that Christians believe five basic premises about God and evil. One, that God exists, that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, that God is omniscient, all-knowing, and that God is wholly good, and evil exists. But someone who might deny that there's a God argue that these assertions can't all be true at the same time. Yet as Plantinga suggests, atheists must provide some proof of why. In other words, it's not simply sufficient to say that they all can't be true. Additionally, proofs are required and certainly none of them have succeeded necessarily in providing those. But let me just provide a second more important ideal in this context. That the existence of evil and suffering actually points in quite the opposite direction. See, the existence of evil and suffering, I think, actually proves that there is a God, rather than disproving him. In other words, it is, an all, it is a powerful evidence of God's existence. Here's what I mean. The skeptic's position assumes that there is such a thing as categorical evil. Whether you're a Christian in this room or not, most people assume or have certain categories in their mind. There's evil and there's good. There's right and there's wrong. And the fact that you even have those categories in your mind proves that there's some transcendent truth that would implant that within you that, that, that for these categories to be true. So, for example, there... Maybe there's an agreement that killing innocent people or abusing children is categorically wrong. Others might consider cancer or being the victim of a tsunami or an earthquake to be suffering. The fact that someone would look at these and say, this is wrong, that there is evil, and this world is broken, ultimately presents a problem. See, where do these categories originate? Where do we get the idea that human beings are important? That human life has value. That human beings should be protected and loved instead of tortured and disposed of. See, if, if you believe in survival of the fitness or fittest, then ultimately seeing human beings as valuable and worthy of love cannot coexist with that. See, we sense in ourselves and in our larger culture that there is an inherent moral order to the universe. There, are, there is a way that things are supposed to be. And the existence of these convictions points towards the existence of a God. And the hope is that as we engage and read the Bible, that we don't just know about a God, but that we know about the God who interacts with our world and interacts and speaks to us. C.S. Lewis states it this way. He says, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please God. My fancies. So it challenges, the Christian world will start to challenge 
this idea that if evil exists, that God does not. And some would say, well, if God exists, he does not allow pointless evil because there's so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional God cannot exist. More on that in a moment. The last and I think more prevailing worldview that I start to see of my generation and the generations after me is actually the influence of Buddhism. That suffering is life, so don't get attached. This is why the prevalence of this thing is so enticing. Why? Because you don't actually have to get attached to anything. Because it's easier to scroll than engage. It's easier to scroll than listen to someone tell their own story about suffering. It's easier to, to, to trap ourselves in a world other. Maybe that's pretend, maybe that's partially real. Than actually sit with some of the discomfort. Some of the discontentment. And for some of us, it starts why we binge watch shows. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with TV or social media inherently. But it's easier in our view sometimes to stay detached than it is engaged. In fact, where this actually comes from is, as I said, this, this Buddhism in at least its westernized form. See, it offers a refuge from the bleakness of atheism. See, without strictness of organized religion. It begins with the challenge of suffering and offers us a way to cope. The combination is attractive. In his best-selling book, The Happiness Hypothesis, um, atheist Jewish psychologist Jonathan Haidt recalls, When I began writing this book, I thought that Buddha would be a strong contender for the best psychologist of the last 3,000 years award. To me, his diagnosis of the futility of striving felt so right. His promise of tranquility, so alluring. But in doing research of the book, I began to think that Buddhism might be based on an overreaction, perhaps even an error. Haidt goes on to recount the Buddha story. The man who becomes the Buddha was a prince, but a prophecy declared that he would one day leave the palace and turn his back on the kingdom. To avert this, the king did everything in his power to keep his son happy. The young prince married a beautiful princess, was giving a stunning harem, and was prevented from leaving the comforts of the palace. But he grew bored and eventually persuaded his father to let him go outside, out in a chariot. To ensure his son continued to avoid unhappiness, the king ordered all his aged, sick, and disabled subjects to stay home. But one man remained on the street, and the prince discovered that everyone ages. The next day, the prince saw a sick man and discovered disease. On the third day, the prince saw a corpse and learned to his horror that everyone dies. As predicted, he left the palace and entered the forest to begin his journey of enlightenment. And when he emerged, the Buddha proclaimed that life is suffering and that the only means of escape is to break the ties of attachment that bind us to life. Hype poses an interesting question. What would have happened if the prince had left his chariot and talked with the aged, disabled, and sick? He cites research showing that even people in deeply undesirable circumstances tend to be more satisfied than dissatisfied with their lives. I remember this well when I visited Kenya several years ago to help dig wells for people that did not have clean drinking water. 
There was never hardly a day without a smile on their face, surrounded by family. And yeah, the, the situation was dire because if they didn't have drinking water, they were likely going to die. But I remember having those conversations and them go, man, we're so grateful for you. We're so glad you're here. And life is not the best, but we are happy and content. He concludes while Height says that while the poor in Calcutta do not lead enviable lives, they do lead meaningful lives as they capitalize on the non-material resources available to them. Perhaps the key to facing suffering is not detachment and removal, but meaning and love. Non-attachment may shield us from suffering. To love is to be vulnerable. To desire and strive is to risk disappointment. I know so many young men who are afraid to work hard at what they want because they might be disappointed. They might fail. And so it's easier to distance and stay detached than it is to engage. So is there another option for coping with suffering? Can we pursue desires and cling to attachment, maybe even strive for good things while finding meaning in the suffering that comes? See, if worldview isn't just a mindset, but it ultimately drives action, we should consider our own. And what I have, would ask is, as we think about the Christian worldview, as we think about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if that is the core, how does that change how we interact with the world? See, is evil pointless. See, evil has a source in the Christian worldview. Selfishness in the human heart, which both consciously and unconsciously is expressed, is, is exerted within our world. Many of you would say, oh yeah, I have some sort of will. Maybe some of you go, yeah, I have free will, I'm unrestrained. But we all have a will, and when that will is expressed within the world amongst other wills, because we all are different, those wills clash. And we sometimes go to fight, flight, fear, react, overreact, preserve. Some of those natural human instincts interact. And what we have to say is, where does a will that goes over the self-preservation and for us, the selfishness ultimately emerge. In the Christian worldview, it says that it comes from a place of sin, and that was not the way in which God designed the world. That death is an outcome of sin and selfishness. That in the beginning, God created all things, and they were good. And then as they were good, that, that people were to, to be with God, and build a good world. But what happens is, because we have our wills, we start to define right and wrong in our own eyes. And ultimately, that's what sin is. is the constant definition or redefinition of what right or wrong is in our own eyes from our own perspective. And then exerting that in the world around us. And ultimately, to miss the mark of a true and transcendent good. And so as the Bible narrates this reality, it actually tells us stories about how God in the midst of evil interacts. 
And that's where we find ourselves in the story of Joseph. You've got to understand that God speaks to Joseph and says, hey, there's a prophecy and a promise for you. Well, Joseph, in his own arrogance, starts mouthing off to his mom and dad and his siblings. And naturally, when your younger sibling starts mouthing off to you, you go, yeah, that ain't going to happen. When in the ancient world, the way in which his brothers decided to deal with it, say, let's going to get him out of here so he has no possessions, no prosperity, no position within the family, let's sell him into slavery. And so Joseph's brothers actually sell him into slavery. And Joseph uh, goes, goes into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And then he ends up at this house. And then he, he ends up as a servant in this house. And then he gets wrongly accused for trying to sleep with his housemaster's wife. She makes up this story about him. And so he's unjustly accused. And so he's already been sold into slavery. Then he, he gets unjustly accused, wrongly accused. Then he ends up in jail. And then God's still at work in his life. And so he meets these series of workers and in, in pharaohs, a, a baker and, and a cupbearer, and starts to tell them what God has revealed to him. And then they even forget about him. They don't actually say, yeah, it was, it was Joseph that, that helped me understand what was going to happen. And so a story of slavery and injustice, wrongly accused, Joseph finally ends up serving Pharaoh and get, getting a position of authority and power. And God actually gives him a vision and says, hey, there's, there's going to be a famine that comes. And ultimately, as this famine comes, Joseph's family, the brothers that sold him into slavery, are affected. This is the same family that God said, I'm going to bless the nations through that I'm going to dwell with humanity, that I'm going to move on their behalf, that I'm going to bless them to be a blessing to others. Well, certainly for Joseph, this doesn't feel like a blessing. And in fact, if the story ended there, we would probably say, and this is pretty jacked up. This is a mess. And this doesn't minimize that what has happened to Joseph is wrong, was evil. But the beauty and the goodness of God can take something that was meant for evil and bring about good. Because as they sold him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt, it's the very act of that that allows him to rescue his own family from that famine. And his brothers are terrified. They're scared. That, that's in Genesis chapter 50. That's what we read. They're like, please don't kill us. Hey, hey, we sold you as slaves. Make us as slaves because that's better than dying of famine. And ultimately, what happens is Joseph says, no, I, I know that you meant to harm me. But God is using this because he has unduly blessed me, gave me a position so that I can be in a position to rescue, to tell the story of a good God who provides even in the midst of injustice. See, that's what's so beautiful about the God of the scriptures, is that even when there's injustice, he is at work to bring about good. And in fact, the New Testament writers pick up on this very theme. In Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28, it says this, and we know all things, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Many of us know that, or, or maybe even believe, 
this verse may even, we think that this might read like this, that all things work together for good, period. And because of this error, millions of people, and sometimes even us, mistakenly think the promise in this verse applies to them, or that no evil will come. But the proper audience for this verse is for the large company of people who not only love God, but are called for a specific or for God's own purpose. The full understanding of these people requires a fairly competent grasp of the entire New Testament, that we are called to live life with God for the world, that we are saved, that we are redeemed, that we are, have inherited eternal life that begins now and continues to eternity, not because of our own merit, but because of the goodness of God moving on our behalf. See, does Romans 8.28 promise that everything everywhere works for good during the earthly existence of the people? No. But what we can recognize is that believers who fully recognize how the trials and the difficulties of this life, they can work together for the good of others. For the good of God to accomplish something within the world in which he wants to accomplish. So there's another case study as well that is of Jesus. Probably the ultimate picture of injustice and suffering. See, Jesus, he chose to walk among the earth as God incarnate, not to subvert our wills, but to walk through pain and suffering with us. See, the Christian worldview is one where God doesn't stay at a distance and say, fix yourselves up, get it together. Here's a law because we know that when we hear a law, typically we want to break it or find our way around it but walked on this earth and became human. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 15, talks about when Jesus sees through his work on the cross and his powerful resurrection. It says this, it says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, for you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting on the body of flesh, but in circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working God who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us, and has taken it away by nailing to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. What he does is he takes the injustice of the systems and provides us a way through. He takes the, the faulty wills of our own hearts and he gives us a remedy. He, he cleans up our hearts and says, walk with me. 
And even the bad things that we've done, the trespasses, as it says, that have been stacked up, he says no more. He cleanses, he redeems, and gives us a new way to walk. He gives us a new life. See, Jesus makes you a new person in him. What I love about this is Jesus didn't just do it from a distance, some lightning bolt in the sky. Hebrews 4 says this, 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Jesus sees you exactly as you are. He's not like some disapproving father who's saying you got to get your act together before you come home, but sees you as a loved child, sees you as someone who in him has an inheritance. He sympathizes with us and is willing to absorb the cost of your sin, of the the consequences of sin within our world that have stacked up over time and absorbs that in himself and responds with love. See, the true mark of the Christian worldview is people who have been changed by grace know that they have received something that's been done for them that they could not earn, and in doing so, they almost pay that forward because someone, Jesus, has taken the consequences of sin, death, and brokenness and paid it forward in love. And that gives us the capacity to move forward within our world. And I, what I love about both these is on the other side of cross is a resurrection. On the other side of Joseph's story is forgiveness. But I also realize there's some of us who are sitting in the midst of that story. I wonder, is there a happy ending? For some of you, you think of loved ones or people who don't think there's a happy ending. And you wonder, what in the world do we do? And if you find yourself in the midst of that story, wondering, for us as a church for generations, I think some of the best things that we can do is we can model not just what Jesus modeled and live what Jesus did, but also recognize how the story of God treats evil and suffering. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. I think one of the things in which we do when we see evil we lament. We grieve. We say this is not as the world ought to be. This is not as the world should be. We call evil, evil. We say this is wrong. We identify injustice and we grieve the fact that it exists. We don't have to come up with some cliche line to pretend like it's okay. We can say it's not. And then we can also, if we know that we have done wrong, if the futility of our own heart is weak and we cause 
others to someone's sin, if we, we cause pain ourselves, we also can repent. We can come like Joseph's brothers and say, hey, we did wrong here. Will you forgive me? We can repent when we do wrong in our own willpower. The third thing I think we can also do is we can seek justice. We can tear down injustice. Some of those consequences that I said at the beginning, when we see brokenness in the world, when we see a tsunami, we, maybe we engage. When we see someone in a dire, dire straits, we, we engage. So we can tear down injustice and we can pursue justice, the biblical view of justice where we restore not just let it exist. And I think the last one is we hope. We have hope and confidence in the glorious ending. That because this world is not as it should be and not as it ought to be, remember that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we get to participate that when we are in Christ. Therefore, we should be tastes of that now. We get to be the remedy now because Jesus empowers us and boldens us and moves. And so when we grow weary, when we feel weak, we can hope and live in that reality. And hope that while this moment may feel dire or bleak, that the happy ending of the story comes in eternity. And that's what we cling to. So, in contrast to the other worldviews, let's not pretend like sin and evil and injustice don't exist. Let's stop treating people like they just get what they deserve. Let's actually absorb, at times, the cost and the model of the cross so that we can respond in love and grace. And do that in such a way because we know that our hope is not what happens here and now, but what comes in eternity. And with that, I believe that as you engage with people on this topic of evil and suffering, that as you live with an alternative worldview that, that tears down all the faulty notions of evil and suffering, that you will live a compelling life, that you will live as Christ lived in the midst of this faulty and frail world. May your wills and your hearts be changed by the grace and the love of Jesus to redirect, to love. And so why is there evil and suffering in the world? There's evil and suffering. Evil and suffering exists because there's both an eternal good and forces that oppose that good especially within the human heart. So may we be agents of people. May we be agents of God's love, of his blessing within the world to live out the eternal good and admit when we cause pain and suffering and sin. May we be people that are marked by the cross and the hope of the resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth. And maybe as Joseph modeled, to his brothers, we can say, don't be afraid. May we comfort people and speak kindly 
to others, those who have even wronged us. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. There's evil and suffering because of sin, because that's not what you designed, because our own will chooses selfishness over your way. Lord, right now, I repent of my own sin. I confess it to you when I act in my own best interest at the expense of others. Jesus, change my heart, challenge me, grow me. Grow us together to be a blessing in the midst of this world. May we not be scared of evil and suffering, but have a willingness to run towards it as you've run towards us. Not to embrace suffering unnecessarily, but to be marked by the cross and absorb what we need to absorb to redirect in love. Thank you for that hope, for that eternity, that reality that comes because of you, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Per each week, we're going to say our concluding prayer. And as we think about the concept and topic of evil and suffering, I hope that as we pray this, that we can pray for each other, with each other. And I'll just also say this as an aside. That's a big topic. I can't cover all of it in a nice, neat sermon. So if you have unanswered questions, use your gen card, reach out. We'd love to engage with you on that topic. So let's put up our final prayer. May we pray this together for each other, for our community. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Through this reality, may you live your faith every day, everywhere. May God's family expand and grow. May your motivation be because of Jesus living out his story. May you make his ways be known and then lived for generations to come. Amen. Have a fabulous week. You're loved 